Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea Gasser from Michigan State University. Today, I am grateful for the opportunity to engage in a dialogue about Orlando with five incredible student affairs educators. We welcome your comments, questions, and participation. You can follow along on the back channel and tweet to the hashtag HigherEdLive to engage in the conversation. Thank you so much to Valerie Hureska and Alex Sylvester for helping moderate that back channel today. Um, in a moment, I'll introduce you to those five individuals who have joined me today, but I first need to acknowledge and thank those who make Student Affairs Live possible. First and foremost, I want to acknowledge my partner and friend, Tony Duty, my behind-the-scenes supporter and the primary coordinator of this episode while I was on a doctoral fellowship in the Netherlands for the past three weeks. Simply, this episode would not have happened without Tony. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. M. Stoner is offering a free webinar on visual design for digital stories on July 20th. Do you know how strong visual design supports storytelling? In this webinar, M. Stoner will explore principles for creating visual interfaces that encourage reading, exploration, and interaction. Registration is free, and we're tweeting out a link shortly where you can sign up. Student Affairs Live is also exclusively sponsored by ACPA, College Student Educators International. ACPA believes that Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways you can be innovative with your professional development. Do you have fiscal year 2016 funds you need to spend? Registration for ACPA 2017 in Columbus, Ohio is now open. We're tweeting out a link now where you can register today. So on with today's episode. My primary aim for today's show is to provide a space and a place for conversation and dialogue about the shooting in Orlando and the aftermath that's reverberating across the country and indeed as I witnessed in the Netherlands, the world. Today's episode is a part of a wider conversation, and I acknowledge and recognize that support is in existence in many other places. However, as a higher education and student affairs community, it is imperative that we come together with an ethic of care to support each other and our students. I want to also acknowledge that there are voices, perspectives, and identities who are absent from this panel today. And I want to identify my own positionality as host, a white cisgender woman who uses she, her, hers pronouns. I recognize the privileges I hold based on these identities, which may allow me to disengage and face few implications for doing so. For those who fear that, um, I want to encourage you, despite personal fear that we might say the wrong thing, we need to break silences and talk about how we show up in these conversations and support each other and our students. So I appreciate the five individuals who are joining me today to engage in the conversation and to the Higher Ed Live Network for allowing us to use this platform for support, healing, and maybe social change. So thank you so much for joining me. I have on the, on the episode today, Mamta Akapati. Hello, Mamta. Hi. Um, Amer Ahmed. Hi, Amer. Hi. Stephanie Bondi. Hello. Hi, Stephanie. Hello. Sydney Love. Hi. And Chakor Martin. Good morning. Hello. So please visit the link that we're tweeting out now for their detailed bios. And let's get on with the discussion. So I'd like to start with each of you talking for a moment, uh, a sentence or two, about your initial reaction to the shooting at Pulse in Orlando. And maybe during that reaction, you can talk a little bit about how you, this reaction may be similar or different to when you heard about other tragedies. Um, so we're going to start with Malta. Okay, so um, hello everyone and, and thank you, Heather. Um, like, uh, of course, these um, it seems like these types of things are happening more and more frequently um, and that generally um, gives me a lot of anxiety and pain in my heart. Um, and I am from Orlando, um, so Rollins College is in the Orlando area um, to give everyone context this is a five-mile radius of our institution and and my home as well and so um, and I was in Washington DC and the day before I had just experienced the pride um, parade in DC and, and I think I'd even just kind of reflected on that and then the following morning I woke up to this and so you know we activated pretty quickly in our institution but so I was shocked and very sad um, and frightened um, and my very um, 
almost instant secondary reaction was, please don't let the shooter be one of my people. Um, because I also know the ripple effect that happens, you know, when um, around that. And whether that's right or wrong, I mean, that's something that's kind of a part of my identity now, is that, that immediate secondary reaction. And then this time, I think the reaction for me was different because it was my hometown and um, how that affected our community overall. Um, so there was kind of a, a different sense of um, space and place um, because of that. Thanks so much. Amer. Yeah, well, um, actually, I can relate to a lot of what Mumta just sh shared. I, ironically, was also in D.C. around Pride activities as well um, when I first heard about it. Uh, and for me, it was kind of a trickle in of information. I think that was true for a lot of people. But um, obviously, I was horrified to hear about it. Um, and then, again, to hear kind of the different layering of identities that ended up being factors and and the way in which some of that was foregrounded and backgrounded uh, and and also sharing the concern of not wanting it uh, on top of my concern for the victims n hoping that it was not somebody um, who would be identified as Muslim and then finding out that to be the case and knowing that the implications of what that is for my community and people who look like me uh, and the way in which we oftentimes get grouped in and um, and so yeah, it's been uh, it's been a, a sense of horror and concern, and even just being with a partner who was Latina, who actually knew one of the victims and worked with them, who was a student affairs professional. Um, it, you know, it's been it's been an upsetting experience, and 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 then again the layers and finding out around the 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 immediate desire to pit you know, LGBTQ identity in in opposition or in, in conflict with Muslim identity has been concerning. And, and then we see that it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, Stephanie. You know, uh, my reaction, I'm ashamed to say, at first I didn't have much of a reaction. Of course, I, I heard about it and I thought that's horrible, but then I went about my daily activities and it really wasn't until I had occasion to speak with a queer person of color about the shooting and I was reading about um, people's reactions on social media that I really recognized the type and the magnitude of the impact on people. And I would say that this is a fairly typical response for me to bias incidents. Um, maybe I don't notice the impact right away because of my many privileged identities. I identify as cisgender and white and straight and so it's not really a surprise. Um, Thanks, Stephanie. Cindy. Uh, my first thought was about my kids. <clears throat> you know, I think um, my son, who identifies as gay, and uh, I know has been in many of those bars uh, just like that on evenings because he loves to dance, and so it's kind of there, and then the next piece for me, I, I thought about um, Metropolitan Community Church in New Orleans, which of course was, the 32 members of that church were burned in uh, the upstairs lounge in New Orleans in 1973 by an arsonist who targeted them as LGBT people who were celebrating pride. That's actually why they were there. And, and then the third layer for me was students, because I knew without knowing yet that there would be students of our local colleges and member institutions there and how really, really hard that was going to be, you know, for them. And then I think sort of this fourth piece is, you know, just being uh, an activist myself and appearing in a lot of public spaces and being gay and knowing that I tick off a lot of people sometimes about what I say <laughs> about things, you know, there's this moment where you think, you know, I really put my children at risk sometimes by that and it's okay and they're okay with it but those were sort of the layers that were filtering for me that day I just felt really sad and like wow this how do we get this right this is not right for humanity thanks Cindy Chakora um, I certainly feel uh, it was a profound sadness um, to be honest, because 
uh, having grown up in the South um, and knowing the role the bar played in yeah. uh, safe spaces, uh, being a place where we could go. I went to school in a very small town where that was the only queer space that existed and um, where you tried that you felt safe or at least safer than you did uh, and, and what that feels like. And I read a couple really good articles about helping people understand that it's not going out to a bar, that, that it's very different for the LGBTQ plus community, that this is a sacred space in a way um, where you don't have to fear um, the, you know, holding your partner's hand or doing those sort of things. So I think it was a profound sadness of what that meant, not just for the folks who were there, because I think you know, violence and acts of violence, regardless of who perpetrates them, are always profoundly you know, challenging to all of us. But to think about what that means for the folks, I, I always say that coming out, for me, um, has a particular connotation. And I can't compare that to anyone else's coming out, because it's, it's just as hard for everyone. But I have students now who have never considered that they could lose their life mm. by, by being in a space that was queer. And this was a moment where I sat with them, um, where they're, they're just, it's a totally different reference point to think about that kind of violence. And just knowing where people will go with identity as opposed to an act by a single person who probably has very complex issues on their own, it becomes um, an opportunity for people to um, to pit communities against each other. And that, I think, is probably where the, the most profound sadness um, resides in trying to, you know, as someone who really stays core to that sort of activism, is how do you, you know, I try to teach my students all the time about how important it is to align with movements, even if it's not about you. And I think that this is one of the things that makes those conversations even more challenging. Yeah. So res response and reaction, I think, is core in what you all just talked about. Um, Stephanie, you wrote a, a phenomenal piece for Inside Higher Ed, I think, that, that um, resonated with me and also referenced some of the things that you just said. And I, and I wonder, because as student affairs educators or folks who work with, high, uh, with college students, you know, how do we help people know how to respond? Um, or how much of it is our humanity that just takes over? Um, can you talk a little bit about this as a faculty member in a professional preparation program? Are we providing this foundation? You know, we're not. Um, Sean Harper has data on this that um, student, graduate students and new professionals are not prepared to respond to incidents or to be proactive in helping people understand bias um, and oppression and trauma. Um, in my own experience working on understanding social justice issues, I'm still trying to figure out my responses every day. Like I shared my initial response to the shooting in Orlando was really minimal and it took me three or four days of paying attention to what was going on and reflecting about who I was and why I was having this non-response that I was having. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of what we need in student affairs preparation is that we need to be examining some of the normalized practice, practices that we have and one of them that I can think of is the ways in our coursework we might worry about the content on the syllabus and not making make time in class to talk about the impacts of current events that are going on. Yeah, when we end up focusing just on those um, those learning outcomes, right? I mean, this probably needs to be central to the drafting of those learning outcomes, not to take it to that point, but. You know, I think, too, in what you all spoke about during your reactions, it has also to do about support for one another. Um, uh, Chakora, my friend Alex Lang here at Michigan State asked this question in particular. How do we support each other and our on-the-ground folks who are, who are working during these times? Um, and Alex also mentioned that they're interested in what you all have to say about the folks who are friends with students on Facebook, mm -hmm. who are seeing their reactions in real time, um, and you know, waiting till Monday morning to process, mm -hmm. or you know, doing that immediately. Um, so you could respond to that. That'd be great. Sure. Oh, I think I have to to say, and I'm sure it's also on everyone's mind that, you know, I woke up, you know, yesterday saying, and we have students from Turkey. We have students who are now addressing, or you know, we have study abroad students who are around the world, and. So I think it's, it's um, when we talk about how we support each other, I think it is that understanding that this is not 
an incident. This has become an unfortunate pattern of violence around the world. And so it's about those tools um, and, and this understanding that if, if we treat it as such, then I think people are less sort of, they're able to develop the coping skills and the mechanisms to process through. Um, we also have to acknowledge this impact of residual trauma. Um, on our students, on our staff, uh, and, and that experience of being more interconnected that we know that relationships are vital for our students with our professional staff. But those relationships mean that there are experiences around uh, the trauma that, that maybe were a little bit different, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So I think that the, there's also this idea of friends of friends being a social phenomenon, our social circle, right? So, you know, this idea that my friend was impacted, but I've never met that person. They're a friend of a friend. Um, and this is a creation of social media, and we can't dismiss the connection of sort of friends of friends and how that may feel like it touches individuals. So, you know, I think it's being open to personal strategies of processing trauma in whatever way we do that. Um, knowing that for some folks it will really be talking it out and doing so in a very timely way. Um, acknowledging that it starts with making sure our staff have the tools, and I think that was kind of touched on from a preparation standpoint, but it also means um, you can't you can't wait for someone else, and I think it doesn't just always fall. I sit in the senior student affairs officer role, but and I know I have a responsibility, but I also work with my other staff to say, you know, you, you have an opportunity. Please don't feel like you have to wait to reach out to your students, that you have to wait for the institution to be the only formal response, that you've built relationships, and, and you can talk with them about this, and if you need help, we will make sure we find a way to get that support, and, and you know, don't just think about it as a one incident, think about how you're, you're going to talk with your students um, whenever an incident of violence happens. Yeah, that, that's a great segue into the question I wanted to ask Mamta, also a senior student affairs um, officer, because student affairs administrators are often called to provide leadership on campus, um, you know, create a response uh, protocol, and also create safe places, right, for students, faculty, and staff to engage in dialogue and um, and in some cases manage the, the change process. So, um, Amta, you spoke already about being in the area in Florida, just outside Orlando. Um, how did this happen on your campus? You know, what did you do? And then um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that as a model. So um, I'll start first with uh, I have really awesome teachers, so I want to acknowledge them. And so um, um, Larry Roper, who's a, a mentor to me and a prior supervisor when I worked at Oregon State, you know, he would often encourage us to um, think of student affairs as we are the conveners of high-stakes conversations at our institutions. So I've kind of taken that learning and kind of carried that with me. And so, but that means preparing our organization. So that's not just around very serious moments like this. That's always how do we convene the community for the appropriate high-stakes conversations. That's preparing students to be citizens of the world. And I think that that's critical to the work that we do. Um, so, um, and I'm really thankful I work with really amazing colleagues at Rollins. So, again, as I shared with all of you, I was in D.C. Our dean of students um, reached out to all eight o'clock in the morning. Um, so we had a team activated at eight o'clock in the morning. I think we had a campus response ready even before the mayor of Orlando had addressed the city. Um, and because we knew, again, proximity, all of those things, just the way that it impacts our community, it would be different. Um, and so like many communities do during times like this, I think it's always important to have time and space for healing um, and for people to come together. Um, and so we had a campus visual. Um, I, school is not in session. I did not anticipate to have the entire chapel on our very small campus full. It was. Community members were present. Um, I was blown away. Um, we also then very immediately began engaging with the community. So we began talking about, okay, what resources are needed? They, you know, they need people to give blood. So we were able to provide, actively provide information for people to be able to support in ways that um, could help the healing process and for us to, to engage as a community. So everything from giving blood to the, the One Orlando Fund that was created for people who wanted to donate financial resources. Our counseling team um, activated like around-the-clock counseling services, um, and so a significant amount of Rollins counselors and alums 
um, supported that effort. Um, and we have a lot of work to do. This doesn't stop here. So um, we will have um, dedicated um, education and service events um, in the fall when our students come back. We have a, an event where um, all first-year students do service. Um, and, and so our theme for our service day is going to be dedicated to Pulse um, victims and families. Um, and then we also had time and space for student affairs folks and staff. We worked with HR um, to have two events on campus during that week um, so that our community could talk. Um, I, um, I think when I think about what our role is um, at the cabinet level, so cabinet, for cabinet level student affairs um, officers, um, I think we have to shift how we do our work. Um, and so I think, um, you know, I think we work along this continuum of reactive to um, affirmative. And um, Heather, there's that, that piece. That's fine. Um, um, and so we are the group that people rely upon to react to things. We, we do that really well. And my nudge for all of us is um, I think we need to, while while we need to um, show how we react, um, or while we, we do the reactive work well, I think we can't forget the responsive, preventative, and then the affirmative work. Um, and so um, what I mean by that is, where are we creating purposeful, intentional experiences where students are cultivating their sense of agency um, in how they contribute to just communities? Where are we teaching empathy? Where are we teaching cultural humility? That is also part of our work. Um, I don't want to be known for the person who can always solve campus problems. Um, our work is about creating just communities. And so um, ask the right question, then you'll get the right answer. And so if we're asking um, and preparing students how not to do things versus like how not to be offensive or how not to hurt people, I think we need to shift the question to how can I contribute to creating the community where everybody's dignity is intact. And I think that that is our work, and we need to convene in partnership around that, that very work. I also think we need to transcend student affairs. So we need to commit to the entire community. I love that we were able to work with HR, and they were thoughtful partners um, in this. And I mean, it, our institutional leadership approach was really, really awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that slide, we're going to tweet out an image of it as well, because I think it um, really, it, at least for me, kind of articulates really effectively the, the things that maybe we need to also focus on in addition to being good responders. Um, so, so Cindy, I'm, I'm also curious about some of the conversations that I've had. Um, I've talked to a few folks who, in the wake of this uh, incident, this tragedy, are struggling to kind of get their head around the core issues, right? Is it guns? Is it homophobia? Is it Islamophobia? Racism? Um, there's a lot to unpack and process. And so for folks with privileged identities like, like me, uh, we can disengage, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so how do we keep people who are feeling this way engaged in the conversation and able to understand kind of all of the issues? And then talk a little bit about um, what are the implications for those who choose not to participate? Well, I'm going to start with the implications. There's this uh, quote that I love, we are as sick as our secrets. And it seems harsh, but the truth is the things that we choose to hold inside ourselves and not deal with uh, doing our own work and in relationship with other human beings in our lives creates inside of us an unhealthiness. Um, and so I, I'm of the belief that even when you're totally uncomfortable and you don't know what to say and you're scared that you'll say the wrong words and people will you know, slice and dice you on social media, whatever it is that you're afraid of, you still have to recognize that the central organizing principle of the work that we do and the reason that we live is human dignity. and in order to achieve that, we have to be willing to be in relationships. So we have to push ourselves. Um, I think the second thing for me is that um, as student affairs professionals, and I'm sort of with MOMPTA, as controversial as it is, I think sometimes just having that identity um, creates this idea that our job is to react, respond, clean up, move on. 
All right, these are these are things that get into a cycle, and the reality is, in these situations, we are actually human beings in relationship inside communities, in a particular slice of the community, maybe. But our silence and our inability to to work, to do our own work and work with other people, creates an ongoing oppression, both of ourselves as individuals within that community and the individuals outside. So if nothing else, Orlando for me, um, maybe it's because it touches my identity very directly, but Orlando for me is sort of this moment to say, if we're, if we're really not doing this in relationship with one another, in this profession we hold dear, surely this is a moment that we could say, okay, stop, we're going to do this differently. Um, at least that's my hope. Hmm. Thank you, Cindy. Um, I mean, I, I want to also talk about kind of all of these overlapping issues, and, and maybe you can speak more about some of the concerns around the discourse that conflates and combines issues, you know, for the sake of pitting one group against another. Um, you know, how can we be not only critical of this discourse and cut through the messages um, in order to help our students? And maybe you can offer a unique lens on this. Yeah, I mean, I think that in order for us to be able to support students, we have to have a sense of what it is that we're looking at. And we're being bombarded with really intense messages that follow kind of preset uh, kind of narratives and stereotypes and perceptions that exist around particular communities and identities and experiences that feed certain narratives and, and privilege certain identities. Uh, and also absolve certain people from having to deal with their own stuff. So and this, this particular incident has really, you know, shattered a lot of those pre-existent um, kind of uh, boxes and frames and how we, how we often think that they organize together. And, and so, you know, you have LGBTQ identity, and again, you're talking historic movements, that were white dominated. Let's be clear about that. Whether it's feminism or LGBTQ identity or what and whatnot, uh, and then you know, and kind of the first of all, the, the negating of the Latino identity of many of the victims, um, uh, and in, in almost in a way to be able to cause more people to be able to identify with the victims, and in in doing so as a us versus them versus Muslims and people who are perceived as Muslims and really putting um, the, the perpetrator in this category of terrorist representing, you know, uh, an ideology and so forth. And there was a real desire to be able to keep that as the narrative. And there's some people who are still holding that narrative, irrespective of the information that has been flowing in mm -hmm. since then, as we start to have to confront and deal with the fact that the perpetrator was struggling with his own sexual identity, um, and the, the fact that get, queer Muslims do exist too, uh, and that these are not two distinctly uh, separate spheres that do not overlap, uh, and the way, and there was mental health issues as well. And then our desire to have individuals like this represent entire communities when we don't do that with people like Dylan Roof of uh, the Charleston shooter. And we don't do that. We don't say that white, cisgendered, straight uh, males who commit these acts, who typically conduct mass shootings more than any other identity, uh, we don't say that they represent lots of other people. Right, and they don't feed this nationalistic lens and so forth. And so, as student affairs professionals, if we can't cut through that, if we can't cut it through the narrative that's being told to us, being being superposed onto, uh, superimposed onto us, right? And if we it, allow that to to be internalized, it's going to be very difficult for us to be able to truly support and empathize with the experiences of students and really understand that queer Latino students are going to struggle in, a, in, a, in certain ways when we're, when we're um, backgrounding that aspect of the identity issues. Uh, queer Muslims are struggling with, in a particular kind of way, uh, and we need to learn and understand 
what's going on there, the implications of this happening during Ramadan, the implications of this happening during Pride festivities, uh, all these intersecting complex issues, and then even the desire to make it an issue of queer and re religious identity and ignoring the racial uh, implications of all of this. Uh, and uh, Because Islamophobia is an issue of racism as well, not just religious identity. And so, um, so we have to come into a deeper understanding of what we're looking at, what these issues are, so that when we are dealing with these kinds of traumas, when we're dealing with this kind of pain and, uh, and hate, we have an ability to be able to, to hear, to listen, to empathize, to challenge ourselves, to engage community, recognizing that it's not unusual that we're going to go to our, to our, our pre-existent identities first. You know, so as much as I was empathizing with queer folks, I was really thinking about my own safety as a Muslim man, as a brown Muslim man in America who is identified and profiled on a regular basis and the implications for me. So how do I hold both of those two things at the same time, right? And, and we have to be able to, to struggle and work through and deal with those things and also be able to be honest with ourselves about those things in our ability to be able to support students. Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. You know, so I'm I'm also struck um, in this conversation by um, the criticism potentially around um, non-response. And Mamta, you talked about what your campus has done, and but many campuses have been criticized for inaction, failing to comment. Um, and and one of the questions that's come in through Twitter from Adriana Gurum is, do you think that the higher education profession would have reacted differently? immediately after if it had happened during the fall and spring term um, in the U.S. And can you talk a little bit about kind of how we need to, regardless of whether schools in session or not, provide support to our campus communities? Um, yeah, and I think, so this goes back to, at least for me, my thinking. I, so I don't know if I know how to thoughtfully answer that question in that if I think there would have been a different response um, because I see people doing really good things um, and can we always be better? Absolutely. I think for me what I would encourage us to think about is a consciousness shift. Uh, so if we think of ourselves as student affairs and our community are students only then yeah that might happen. We might say oh there are no students on campus therefore we don't need to create this response. If we think of ourselves as contributors to an ecosystem that creates a thriving learning community for students, that means we are caretakers of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And whether students are on campus or not, we have a duty to contribute to the health and well-being of the ecosystem. And the staff contribute to the ecosystem, the faculty contribute to the ecosystem, facilities, everyone contributes to the ecosystem. So our job is to, um, and uh, many folks have said it, Cindy said it, Amr um, said it, Chakora said it, um, and Stephanie also, that our job is to be in relationship. Um, and so if we center our conversation on relationship and not what are the tasks we need to do, um, then I think we'll land to responding or engaging in a way that's thoughtful. Oh, thank you. So, Chakora, in um, previous episodes of Student Affairs Live, we've unpacked group memberships and values. Mm -hmm. um, and in a previous episode, my colleague Paul Eaton asked then, and I think it's relevant now, uh, what do we do as social justice educators if a group's values include advocating for racism, for sexism, and for homophobia? Right. So I, I want to just acknowledge, too, I think, Edmure's point and how important it is we, we name sort of what was going on in that space, you know, that it's a, a queer club, that it's Latinx night, that there's these, you know, an individual who's identified as Muslim. I mean, there's, right, there's this intersections of how we like to say why? I, I think whenever an act of violence like this happens, we always go, why did this happen? And that's a bit of human nature, but because of the way our society conflates and frames these identities, um, we have a hard time unpacking that. And I think this is similar when we talk about a group's values or an individual's values around racism and sexism and homophobia. And I'm sure my colleagues have also had many conversations with their students around what does it mean to to really um, think about one's core values. I think that's a big responsibility when you come to college. I mean, it's one of, I say, the benefits and opportunities 
is to really look at your core values, what you come to the table with, what you believe in, and how important that is to your own identity. It doesn't mean you're going to change them. It doesn't mean we devalue your culture, your family, and the things you bring. In fact, students may come to a college environment and actually reaffirm very much cultural and familial values that they, they believe in very strongly. However, it's much like the argument when I talk about free speech is you have the right to free speech, but you also have the responsibility that comes with that speech. So as social justice educators, I talk with our students about, you know, you we can have a group that we don't agree with. How do you have that conversation? How do you think about their, you know, the opportunity to engage in dialogue? What does it mean to challenge someone on their beliefs? And I imagine I've talked with so many colleagues about how students are doing this in a way that is free from violence, particularly forms of intimidation or isolation, trying to isolate other students because they don't believe in the same things they believe in. And I remind our students that you know if you belong or have particular values and identities, you're right, people may not like what you believe in. Um, and that's, that's the responsibility of what we choose to participate in. However, we also need to make sure that our students, our primary responsibilities, we're giving our students the tools to evaluate and critique participation in all of these different groups. I mean, isn't that, when they leave our colleges, we want them to be able to do exactly that. Look at an organization, I don't care what it's about, look at a job and say, do I believe in what this group puts forward? We hope that they do that understanding tools like inclusion and equity and respect and compassion because I think we hope that they will then make really good decisions around the value of human dignity and the value of all of our identities even if I don't agree with yours in that sense of, of mutual respect. So I continue to have those conversations but I think our profession is challenged um, to how to deal with sort of the policing of values from our students with each other um, and that what is what what is the right kind of let's say queer and that what is the right kind of queer what is the right kind of identity what is and if you're not um, how we start to ostracize versus dialogue and it, it's going to be an ongoing conversation we've seen a lot of articles but we also don't have to sit and suggest that it's okay I always tell people your right to free speech um, is equally balanced with my right to disagree with you um, and to do that publicly and vocally. I love that. That's a, that's a new t-shirt, I think. <laughs> um, I, I'm really conscious, too, of the communities of support within Student Affairs as well um, and how we're reflective of the values of, our, of the profession of Student Affairs, right? So ACPA has a code of ethics that contains very specific language about social justice and um, the NASPA and ACPA uh, professional competencies also share that language. Um, I'd like each of you to talk a little bit about what that means for each one of us and then how that affects the larger field. So, Chakor, do you mind if I go back to you? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I, 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 this was great because it prompted me to, you know, reread and think about these standards. And, and what I really do appreciate is that we're talking about advocating for social justice. What I think we have a challenge of is identifying what is social justice, you know, on, on each campus within each person. But I do think one of the things that speaks to me most is one of the bullets in that statement about treating students, and I will say everyone, with respect as persons who possess dignity, worth, and the ability to be self-directed. And I think that kind of goes in line with um, how we engage in, in civil discourse, um, how we think about students who enter college and are in various spaces and sort of what does it mean to meet students while they are with actually an end goal in mind that they can engage in conversation um, and also this this teaching like I said for compassion and respect and appreciation but also I think the most important point that we as student affairs professionals are encouraging students to be self-directed in this journey and I think that's an ethical and moral responsibility for us to actively engage with students to encourage them to think about social justice as an equity issue and not just equality. So for me that means you know that different things work for different people but you have to make sure you understand the context you're sitting in and that truly is the work we're doing. Much like Mamta said, the proactive work of teaching students context and history um, so that they can really make a, an, I think an ethical decision about 
um, where their steps are. I think that makes me feel like I am ethically doing the work I need to do to give them the right tools. Thank you. Amer. You know, uh, when, when I think about um, the, the, the perpetrator, I, I really think about what I, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what would it have meant for him, you know, let's say he was in higher education, hypothetically, which he wasn't at the time. But, you know, for somebody to have been able to reach him and to support him around the the, the complex identity negotiation he was uh, confronting and dealing with, because his inability to 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 to, to navigate in uh, what was really challenging issues of being Muslim, uh, being queer. Um, challenging issues he was experiencing within the queer com community as we started to learn, you know, uh, and and how that created certain types of narratives within himself towards queer Latinx people, and and, and so for me, I just have have been constantly thinking about how do we support individuals like this, right, and understand the implications of what happens when we don't support individuals who are going through these dramatic struggles and we don't understand what it is that they're struggling with. You know, um, I, I have found it to be really interesting to, to watch people who have not been very supportive to, uh, to, queer, uh, to the queer community suddenly wrap themselves around the queer community uh, as if, the, uh, as if uh, some of these people have been literally people who've been fighting against queer, gay and queer rights in this country, including the Attorney General of Florida. And so, you know, to, to watch people absolve themselves, right? And so the easy thing for us to do is to blame, right? And, and to absolve ourselves and to say, we have nothing to do and to tell, take the self-righteous position instead of thinking about what, how have we failed? And in student affairs, we have to constantly ask ourselves that question. What is it that we need to do to do a better job to support students in, in navigating and, and dealing with the really complex issues that they're facing and dealing with and to not over-intellectualize these ideas with the language of social justice and not really understand how that actually sits in people's lives, right? And how do we go about meeting people and creating those spaces and understanding what their needs are, and then building policies, practices, and procedures. I really appreciated the mentioning of self-directed learning and, and helping students really uh, uh, and supporting students and developing their own ability to navigate who they are and in, in their learning and not try to dictate what it is that we, we think that they need to learn and understand based on it, because that's informed by our own experiences and our own identities, right? And, and, and I think part of the backlash to a lot of social justice work that's happening in higher education has been the over-intellectualizing, the oppression Olympics, the kind of replication of elitism through language and discourse around social justice without our, uh, us grounding ourselves in the real experiences of marginality that people are actually struggling with. Thank you. Thank you. Stephanie, can you also respond um, and, and maybe also build into your response a, a question that Jeremy Van Hooser has asked about the role of professional preparation and, and how we respond and support our students um, while we are also healing ourselves and how that relates to ethics. Sure. You know, when I was listening to Amir talk um, about the over-intellectualization, you know, I'm a big nerd. I've been socialized to be this intellectual, getting my PhD, um, and so I often find myself in that headspace, thinking about things. and And sometimes, because of my experiences and my background, not experiencing a lot of oppression, um, I don't get very far with that because I I relate back to my own world worldview and my own. Um, ways of understanding the world and so I kind of get stuck but I can always go to my heart and feel like I can find a place where I get direction where I know that something doesn't feel right that there that someone is being treated unjustly that um, that things aren't as they could be they aren't the way I would want them to be, um, that someone is is hurting. And so 
I can always come to the heart and, and get some direction and grounding. But we don't talk about that in the academy, right? Um, the values in the academy are intellectualization. They are about logic. We don't have a lot of spaces in our coursework. We're not socialized as faculty to bring um, emotion into the classroom. And so it's not surprising then that we have this over-intellectualization. Um, you know, when it comes to the ethics and the standards, I think that everybody has their own interpretation of what they mean. That's that's my experience when it comes to social justice. Everyone crea creates their own definition and meaning. Uh, but for me, it's really about challenging the normalized practices, the things we do every day to ask the questions of who is this serving and who is not being best served by these, these things that we take for granted in higher education um, and then trying to work to serve more people. Um, so in terms of Jeremy's question, you know, finding support for ourselves as faculty members, um, I know that most of my support comes from other faculty members and other student affairs professionals who have similar values and interest in working for social justice and I usually make those connections uh, through professional organizations or um, I, you know, I have some relationships from my preparation program, so I encourage people to build up their communities. Great, thank you. Um, Mamta, can you talk a little bit about the, the codes of ethics and um, competencies and how that resonates for you around this topic? Um, abs absolutely. So, um, you know, I was thinking about um, uh, I, I want to invoke Vernon Wall um, because I think for me he has framed the parameters of my consciousness and how I do this work um, and it's the parameters around two questions um, and so Vernon Wall has taught me um, how do we do this work based on what does everyone deserve and what does nobody deserve and that is, that is a great way to contextualize how we serve um, our communities and so my answer is within that context um, and so for me I think we have to start with doing our own personal work. I want to underscore the stuff that's been said already and add to it um, in that I think we have, um, I think our theoretical frame, everything that we learn from an intellectual, individual, individualistic frame, all of those things that make us intellectually excellent are amazing. I think the uh, an unfortunate byproduct of that is we've done, then engaged in the social justice conversation in a binary way. This is right, that is wrong. Right. And our work is not about the continuum of right and wrong, it's about how are we going to be in relationship to shift the energy uh, you know, of a context, or how, how are we going to be in relationship to elevate the humanity of our work. Right. So if I'm in a right and wrong conversation with someone around race, religion, um, pick any dimension of identity, then I'm in the wrong conversation. And so I think we need to calibrate the conversation. So for me, that's the first thing. The second um, component is, um, and um, all of us at some level, but I, I heard from Amr kind of bringing up the intersectional components of this work. Um, and so um, Vijay Prashad um, writes, uh, and of course he invokes from historian Robin Kelly, this notion of polyculturalism. And so, um, and Ajay Nair has written about this a little bit as well, but um, Inter to me, polyculturalism is considering intersectionality over a historic context, right? So we have to look at the, the historic and political contexts by which these conversations have been happening over time and engage our communities and students in a polycultural way. What we've been doing now is operating in a multicultural way where as if these identities and experiences and, and narratives, historical narratives are not informing one another. So I think we need to shift our education and practitioner frame to be in a more polycultural approach. Um, and what that means also is that that approach needs to be grounded in humility, um, meaning a cultural humility um, and empathy. And so invoking cultural humility and empathy, that allows us to be... Um, more heart-based practitioners that we're transcending the right-wrong conversation um, and that we're doing it in a polycultural way. Thank you so much. I just want to jump off of what some of the things that uh, quickly what Stephanie and Mumta said is that I think 
what we're what we're doing in 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 framing the conversation this way is we're challenging the historical nature in which higher education has fundamentally functioned and operated as a hierarchical patriarchal white cisgendered um, institutional structure in which we in which the intellectual mind is privileged and viewed as the ultimate way of knowing uh, in which of course we know most cultures that's not the only way of knowing uh, and so we're we're trying to bring in heart space we're trying to bring in um, empathy we're trying to bring in the spiritual um, other kinds of ways of knowing um, that are in direct conflict with the historical nature of how higher education was built uh, structured and what it was essentially built for and so we have have to recognize that those of us who are within higher education in in framing these conversations this way we are challenging the very core of what higher education has historically been about and so that process of decolonization is deep and profound and we need to name that that's what's happening while also recognizing that that makes us a threat to the institution at the very same time yeah that's a great point can I have one more add to that for sure so then, when you're talking about our curricular experience, if we're not learning, for example, post-colonial theory in our higher in our grad prep programs, we're not equipped with the tools to bring that theory to practice. And so then, how do we um, bring a different or a, an augmented set of consciousness to what we're preparing our practitioners to do, so that that liberatory work can happen? Yeah. Cindy, I think I think you probably have some thoughts on this uh, related to. Um, and the reading that you've done and, and the work that you do at ACPA, can you comment a little bit on that as a professional association? Well, <clears throat> I think <laughs> Amir nailed it. I think in order to do what we're talking about, we're really challenging the very thing that feeds us and signs our checks and uh, and where we find our own personal meaning and and evolution and so you know when you make those kind of choices there are certain risks that go along with that and there have to be people within these systems who are willing to take those risks and to say those things and create those kinds of models otherwise we perpetuate um, the situation and I was just thinking about when we were talking about preparation programs and um, I was in um, Winnipeg the last week with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission work there and we got to visit the new Human Rights Museum there mm -hmm. and it's the first museum I've seen in the world that doesn't focus on a single identity or a single oppression it actually goes from the beginning of time forward and links all of them together in the way that each of you were talking about and I was thinking about when I was there how incredibly valuable it would be if students had that sort of experience, that, that holistic frame for the work. And I think what's happening now with us as an association, you know, we've been very dedicated to promoting the competencies that were jointly developed and obviously the ethics and, and programs and preparation. But we see that all of that good work still uh, presents us with a huge gap mm -hmm. and so what are we willing to do now to acknowledge that which is part of truth and reconciliation acknowledge that and then figure out how to set that right I think I think that's the challenge of today and I'm feeling it pretty deeply as an association because we are so binary in our thinking about right and wrong and good and bad and the words we must use and the words we shouldn't use and um, you know, really trying to figure out how to change that for all of us. Uh, the Little Prince would say it's a sweet responsibility and right now it's feeling more like that thing that hangs around your neck and the uh, historical spiritual text. You know, can we actually lift that off? I'm not sure. I hope. Thank you so much, Cindy. Um, I want to take this a second and acknowledge the voices on Twitter that are that are noting the absence of a Latinx um, perspective from the panel, and and just recognize that we realize that that's a gap um, among our knowledge. Um, and I want to maybe target a question to you, Amer, about this because I think 
um, in many spaces, Latinx voices are not amplified, uh, particularly in mm. LGBT spaces. And this, this gets to our conversation about intersectionality. Um, this shooting um, seems to be largely about race. So how do we challenge white-dominated queer spaces to unpack whiteness? Yeah, well, I, I think that that has a, is a huge factor for why things played out the way that they they did because the 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 reality is that um, the queer identity fundamentally plays out differently amongst people uh, various communities of color than it does around uh, around whiteness and a lot of the discourse has been framed around whiteness um, both culturally as well as socially and so. Um, even just the framing, and even if you notice what Cindy said around the, the good, the bad, even the framing, the binary of in and out right. as, as a binary as well, um, that's a very Eurocentric framing. And so, uh, so for, for example, I'm going to use um, uh, what my experiences uh, from various parts of the Islamic world in which um, I have seen uh, the parameters of, of gender being much broader within heteronormativity, uh, in which men can hold hands uh, in public and women can hold, and so hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity aren't as intense within a broader parameter of heteronormativity. But the consequences of of being beyond what is considered heteronormativity can be can be much more dire and much more challenging. And so this ties into the cultural framing of what happens within our communities, right? Around Latinx identity, around machismo, and around the way sexuality and gender are are, um, are constructed around all different kinds of ways of, uh, of engaging public transcripts. And so these kinds of issues have been marginalized within the idea of what queer identity is. Uh, and so when these spaces are created, there's a marginalization of particular groups and identities and experiences and narratives. And again, what have we always seen is the pitting of various marginalized identities against one another. And so what we saw within the, the perpetrator of this activity was a deep degree of hate that got cultivated towards Latinx individuals, right, based on his experiences. Uh, and again, the inability to cope and deal with uh, with uh, the, the ways in which he was feeling marginalized, which was also coming from problems and challenges within the Muslim community as well, and, his in, uh, and the inability for our community to be able to be supportive and to be able uh, to navigate issues around queer identity. within our, So that's where the intersections end up uh, playing out, and all of that is within the context of white supremacy. And so that's why whenever we operate around looking at the intersections, we have to hold the lens of, of how race functions and operates and the way in which it is historically and continually pits communities against one another uh, and cultivates hates. And then we want to label that in the broader public discourse as racism. No, that's hate, right? But racism would connotes the, the structure, the historical structure of inequity that is causing group communities to hate each other. And identities and groups across different, uh, a, a different across different experiences. And so, I, I just bring that forward to be able to say that as we move to the uh, to more intersectional ways of looking at the work, you know, it's really important for us to not lose that lens of race and racism and historically how that has played out in this country and how that's playing out in these particular communities and groups within a, a further marginalized identity of being LGBTQ. Thank you so much. We are unbelievably nearing the end of our time together, and I want to acknowledge we have probably four or five questions that we did not get to on this episode because the conversation's been fabulous, and thank you to all of you on Twitter who are engaging as well. Um, I would love to move towards our final thought, and specifically around sustaining this conversation and continuing to engage um, creating opportunities to take action. Uh, I, I think many of us have, have talked about how much work there is to do. So what is next for each of you? And if you have any resources that you'd like to share with those who are watching this episode today, uh, we will tweet them live and then also post them in our, in our website. Um, so Cindy, will you, will you start with final thoughts? Sure. 
Um, I sent in a couple of links that I think might be helpful. Um, one of them is to the blog that we brought out. The other is to a video that we did about Orlando. And in the blog, it contains some resources for people who are understanding how to deal with the trauma uh, of this event for students who are returning to campus for the first time who missed the time on campus during the event and some of the research has come out of public health on um, working through those issues. I think that might be important for practitioners um, and I think for me personally I'm trying to figure out how how do we truly move from being technicians to being teachers. We claim that identity of educators we often default to the technical aspects of what we need to do to fix uh, respond, react, the things that we mentioned. How do we actually elevate that now for everyone that we work with in community? Um, so, thank you. Thank you so much, Cindy, for being here today. Amir, I'm going to go to you next. What do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I just mentioned it about the need to really hold the lens of race and racism in relationship to, to these issues and how these intersecting identities play out in, in relationship um, to race and ra racism and the way it, it functions and for us to be able to um, begin to have a deeper understanding of how these issues play out in various communities. We learned about how many of the victims were outed in the process of, of their victimization, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the issues within specifically within their communities that uh, cause them to negotiate um, their identities and their and their and the issues related to that the way in which they they felt the need to do so and so therefore families very much struggled in addition in learning about that type of information and so going into the depths of, of the intersections I think is going to be critically important for us to be able to understand um, the experiences, the struggles, the challenges that students are facing in, in a very significant part of identity formation in terms of young adult development. And, and, that, uh, and our ability to support that is going to dictate their ability to be dyna dynamic in the future. And so really recognizing that responsibility that we have in supporting our students around that. Thank you so much. Mamta, what's, what's next for you? Um, um, before I go into what's next, I, I do want to um, be in the space of owning my dominant identity, particularly as a, a cis heterosexual woman, um, and, and I have to pause and, and kind of be in a space of vulnerability and apology around um, that missing voice mm -hmm. of, of, of queer Latinx, uh, particularly men, um, and I think that that's important, and I think that that feedback, I just, I want... I want everyone out there to know that that I'm holding that. Uh, and so as an individual, I have a lot of work to do. And with my group membership identities, I have a lot of work to do. So um, I, I will be in it, and I need to do and be better. So as an individual, I want to acknowledge that. Um, and that actually leads into my final reflections anyway, which is we have to stay in it. This work is perpetual. It is lifelong work. Um, when I worked in multicultural affairs, doing inclusion work was food, dance, and festival. If we have a cultural event and someone will dance about it and there's a festival, and our work stopped there. And that's not to say that that work isn't important, but it doesn't stop there. Um, so in a parallel frame, in moments like this, our work um, can't be statement, prayer, hashtag uh, work. It has to be more than that. It has to be continual. It has to become the fabric, part of the fabric of our institution. Um, at Rollins, I was very open about there's a disproportionate impact to a very specific community and let's be honest about that and what that means in, in, in our work and I would encourage us to be courageous and compassionate um, around that so if we can lead with compassion and humility um, I think what what's next will continue to unfold in partnership with the communities um, that we need to be in. Great, thanks so much. Chikora. Uh, you know, I appreciate Monta's comments, and I think that uh, one of the things I continue to remember is that sometimes I get so caught up in the work, I forget to do the real work, and I think that's what I'm, you know, reminded, and it's why I take time to be in these spaces, either as a panelist or just to listen in, because I think it grounds us in the the work that is our responsibility, and to take that responsibility to a place of action. And so that's what I'm going to be working on, is acknowledging that, one, it's okay to be vulnerable around what you didn't do so well when something like this happens. 
happens to give your, you know, yourself and your staff space to to move forward. Um, and I also think not to to be able to compartmentalize our identities so easily and to think about this as, as an issue. These were people. These were young people mostly, but these were people across various spectrums. I'm sure in that room there were parents and siblings and people with different identities that we will never hear about. Um, and we know that, and I think we just have to let ourselves feel that. And I think the last thing I unfortunately am doing next is preparing for what will happen next um, and to know that there will continue to be um, you know, acts of violence perpetrated against people who are most vulnerable. And how do we as a campus prepare for that um, in a way that doesn't also keep us from from celebrating, you know, each other, and from celebrating what we know is a, a powerful experience. And so that that balance will be, you know, be hard, but that a good work to be continue to do. Thank you, Chakora. Stephanie. Yeah, I want to echo what Mamta and Chakora said um, about the the lack of inclusion of a Latinx voice here, and I think that is a great example of my next step of continuing to show up even when I make mistakes and I'm a part of something that isn't um, flawless that does hurt people um, that I have to keep learning from that and keep showing up. Great. Yes, as host I take responsibility for that lack of voice and so thank you to all of you for speaking about that and to those of you who are watching on Twitter I appreciate that feedback very much. Um, so to all of you on the panel today, thank you. I appreciate your time and all of the words that you shared with us and your attention to this important issue and your contributions to the community of student affairs educators watching. Um, I would like to invite all of you to stay tuned for announcements about our July and August episodes. Uh, we will be uh, posting those on the Higher Ed Live newsletter, which you can subscribe to on the website, and you can also preview, um, you can review past episodes and browse our archives or subscribe to our podcast.